So with supernatural selection, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I think this is so foundational for the whole creation evolution debate. When I go and do debates or do whatever, what I hear all the time is evidence of evolution has something to do with, um, you know, this frog has, you know, longer legs than this frog, or this turtle has a wider neck or a longer neck, and this turtle has a bigger shell or a rounder shell. It's all these kinds of things. And that's the evidence of evolution that's always used, are these variations among different species. Now, while there are reasons for that, as creationists, we've always said things reproduce after their kind. That's what the Bible said. So a frog is always a frog. A dog is always a dog. That's just the way it is. And that still stands to be true. But there is a difference here in uh, what we have been learning because of genetics. And so in epigenetic studies, you're going to see that not only are we revealing how Evolution truly is idol worship. Whether you are an, a theistic evolutionist, somebody who believes God used evolution as his means of creating things, or you're an atheist, you're on the same page when it comes to what th this is idol worship. And we'll discuss that here as we go. And so Randy Galuza of the Institute for Creation Research has done a lot of research on this kind of thing and speaking on it, and that's kind of where I picked it up from. And so I wanted to kind of let you know where... It, it's kind of originating from. So we're going to get started on this here tonight. And the first thing I want to talk about is cave fish. I don't know how many of you have heard about the cave fish, how we go into caves where there's no light and you're going to see that there are fish that have no eyes. They're blind. And they use this as an example of evolution. Look, all of the, over millions of years, these things have lost their eyes and they can no longer see. And so this is basically what we call natural selection. When you read about it in textbooks, when you see it in newspapers, magazines, whatever. But I want you to just dissect that word. What is natural selection? For you kids, have you guys heard of natural selection? Yeah. What is it? Well, I'm a, nature. You know what nature is, right? Do you know what a selection is? I could go and select Nathan and pick him out to go do something, right? You can select a red crayon from the box. It's to choose something. So what they're saying is nature chooses. Nature has the power to actually do the selection. Well, you're going to see how that is absolutely incorrect scientifically and certainly biblically. Instead, what we're seeing is that within these fish, in every animal, even you guys here, not that you're animals, but you people, human beings, as a special creation, have an innate ability inside you to have these changes take place very quickly because of the environment that you live in. We'll talk about that here as we move on a little bit there, but God has put it there. Nature didn't do it. Nature is not doing the selecting. God put in you something that does the selecting. And these changes in these blind cave fish are not only repeatable, but they're predictable and oftentimes even reversible. And we're going to show you that in a moment. Here are just some examples. There's over 120 different kinds of blind cave fish. You can see here a few of them, uh, the changes here. Again, predictable, reversible, and even repeatable. So here on the bottom, they're eyeless. 
and above they have eyes. You can see the different rows of them there. Well, what's fascinating is we have here, this article shows that they can go blind in a single generation. It doesn't take millions of years. doesn't even take decades. A single generation, this article is telling us. They go hyperpigmented, and they'll go blind very quickly. Well, already then, that knocks Darwinian evolution out of the park. There's no way that it could happen. As a matter of fact, this picture here on top is a blind cave fish that the Institute for Creation Research got. This picture down below on the right is the exact same fish 30 days later by simply putting it in sunlight, letting its environment have sun. 30 days, it has already almost gone back to its original fish. Here is on the top that blind cave fish. On the bottom is what it's a normal one would look like. But that's only after 30 days. Now, again, as I said, it's predictable, reversible, and repeatable that you can do this nobody has ever done this before and now we're seeing that in 30 days these changes take place just like that you might have heard of Darwin's finches some have these big wide beaks some have more narrow small beaks well that was has always been used as an evidence of evolution for so long right well in fact they're even teaching us here that these Finches, it says on the bottom right here, growing evidence suggests that epigenetic mechanisms may also be involved in rapid adaptation. I want you to start looking for those words in articles or in the news. Rapid. Rapid adaptations to new environments. What they had is these finches were segregated into two populations. Those that basically ate trash and human food and those that were just eating kind of nature food. And they had different types of beaks. Well, they're finding in just two generations that those will go back and forth. You can take them out of their environment, give them different food, and their beaks will go from the big wide ones back to a narrow one, or a narrow one to a wide one. Because rather than DNA changing it, it's not the DNA that's evolving or mutating, but rather there's little chemical markers on the DNA that are simply turning on or turning off how that uh, gene is expressed, okay? No changes, no mutations, just on or off. And by doing that, those little chemical markers, you get these changes that take place very quickly. Two generations, the beaks change. We have here the peppered moths. These used to be in our textbooks, and as the story goes, that you had these, uh, these light-colored moths, and they blended into these white trees, until the Industrial Revolution came and it turned the soot, turned the trees a darker color. Well, now the birds could see these light moths very well and they would come and eat them all. Now, meantime, the black moths, before there were hardly any of them because they stuck out like a sore thumb on the whiter trees. But the Industrial Revolution, turning those trees a darker color, now those flourished. And they'd say, ah, oh, that's evolution. Well, that's not evolution. Okay, that's just, you know, naturally, God selecting out what's going to exist because of the uh, ability for you to survive based on something eating it. If all of a sudden a storm comes through and wipes out your entire herd of sheep but one, that doesn't turn that one sheep into a cow, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. But that's how the story went. But it's a false narrative. First of all, those things never did happen. 
As a matter of fact, those trees, every time you see a picture of a peppered moth on a tree, they were glued on that tree as they were dead already. Those moths only come out at night. Birds don't eat them at night, so it made no difference anyway. So it was a false narrative from the start. However, that aside, what we're seeing is, look what this article says. Over 95% of the black moths had the same 20,000 plus mobile DNA. Another interesting word there. We saw rapid changes. Now we're seeing mobile DNA insertions at the same place in the gene associated with color. What they're showing, Nature Magazine reported this, that DNA, it isn't static. It, it, it moves. It changes its expression all the time, on, off, different parts of it, on or off. We often kind of thought of it as, you know, read-write memory, okay, that... In a computer, you can have read-only memory, the ROM, like your CD-ROMs. You could only read off of it, read-only memory. You couldn't put on it. But now what we're seeing is it's read-write. You can not only take information out of the DNA, read from it, but you can put information onto the DNA with these chemical markers. Changes take place. So what happened here was a part of a pigment for the DNA has been spliced into what they call a promoter area, which causes the moth to get darker a lot faster. Now, all that is by splicing is if you have a long section of DNA, you can actually splice a piece out of it and move it to a different place. You can move it. It's the same information rearranged. Okay, and it happens all the time. Here's a, a really cool one, I think. Uh, in Minnesota, you've got the northern pike. You've probably seen northern pike. They have all these sharp teeth and everything, and, and they'll you know, kill a lot of the things in your lakes and ponds or whatever. Well, in a, a, a pond or a lake, oftentimes you're going to have things like carp. You've got these Cretian carp that are pictured here as well. You've got bass. You've got sunfish, things like that. Well, this northern pike can go and eat one of those bass, nothing happens. It can eat a perch, nothing happens. But if it goes and it eats one of these Cretan carp, it's digested in the stomach, it, it goes out in its waist, so there's an odor of this Cretan carp that has been digested. The rest of those carp in the lake sense that. And they, when they sense it, within 24 hours change shape. The top is what it looks like before the odor. The bottom here is what it looks like afterwards. They get that big hump on its back to make it a little bit harder for them to be eaten, as well as it makes them more streamlined and faster to swim. And that happens just in 24 hours. Because the other carp say, oh, my cousin, I just, I can smell him. Something's wrong and they change. Okay, there's nothing that they're thinking but it is simply a reaction, a sensor that's in that carp fish that realizes that there's a problem, and that sensor then has a pre-built solution inside of it, and it just responds. We'll talk more about that as we go. Here's another one, the reef race fish. Okay, you got males and females. Usually what happens is you're going to have about 10 to 15 females with one male that hang out in a little school. Now the male is the one here with the stripe. What happens then if a fisherman comes along and that male gets caught? 
Well, now you don't have a male for these 10 to 15 females anymore. So what happens is within 24 hours again, one day, the female begins to grow testes and begins to form and morph into a male, and there's a new male formed for that school of fish. And Yeah, not quite. <laughs> However, it's always the larger of the female that does this as well. Amazing. Now, we could talk about bees and how bees also can do the same thing. As soon as a queen dies in the beehive, they start feeding those eggs a certain type of jelly and whatnot to make a new queen. It's that same type of thing going on here with fish. But these changes are rapid, repeatable, and predictable. That is not evolution. That does not fit the definition of evolution or anything that any of you were ever taught about evolution. This is something different going on. We even see things like mice. This is kind of crazy. They took male mice and they put them on an electric metal pad. And then they would expose them to the scent of cherry blossoms, okay, that aroma. Every time they, they would kind of put a little poof of cherry blossom odor into the cage, they'd zap them. And so they basically kind of were training them that this is bad. Whatever is in this environment, when I smell it, it is no good. Well, what they did then is they did that for a while. They took the males out of the cage and they put them in with what they call naive females. That means... Well, you know that, you know, you all know what that means. Um, no, it means those that had not been exposed to the odor of the cherry blossom. Okay? So you put it in the cherry, uh, you put them in the females that were naive, and what ends up happening is they had young. As soon as the young were born, then they took and they killed the young, and they looked at their brains under a microscope. And they found that all of those babies no longer, they had an aversion to the scent of cherry blossom. Okay? They never smelled it once in their life. The brain here on the left, you can see, are the control where the mice had, you know, the, the parents, the father or the mother had no exposure, no shock. The ones on the right are the children of the parents, or the father anyway that had been shocked with cherry blossom odor. And those darker areas are the area of the brain, the olfactory nerves, and area that sense that smell. There was a genetic change that took place because of an environment that was created by that electric shock. Showing what I find fascinating is we are what we eat, there's generational sins, that we do pass on things to our children. Okay. We see here that through the sperm of that male mouse, there were genetic markers that were passed on so that the offspring <coughs> are better suited for a dangerous environment that the parents were living in. Now, we can say the same thing. I'm not going to get into it too much tonight, but what we eat today is important. You may say, well, that's fine. It's just me, my body. I'm going to get fat. I'm going to do it. It doesn't really matter. But that's not true. We're finding that what you eat, especially young parents, what you're eating is actually turning on genetic markers, turning off genetic markers that you will pass on to your children and can make your children more susceptible to things like diabetes because you are irresponsible in the way you eat. 
This is just one example of that as well. And so it is important. So when the Bible talks about gluttony and those type of things, it, it doesn't just affect you. There are generational sins that it can affect even them. And this is just what we see in the animal kingdom as well. So epigenetic markers. So like I was saying is that it's just like a car or even NASA. When NASA built the space shuttle, what they were doing is they were trying to say, what kind of problems could we encounter as we send the spaceship out into outer space? Well, you know, what if this sensor goes bad? Well, we have to have some way to overcome that problem. What's the solution to that problem? And so there were thousands and thousands of problems that they would develop solutions to before they even sent the space shuttle up into space. God has done the same thing in our DNA. And so in our bodies, our genetic makeup, we see that there are, God knew that there were going to be different environments that you might live in. And he has pre-programmed solutions that are already there in case those problems arise. And that's basically what we're seeing, is that that is something that had to be engineered. That is intelligence. That's not nature. Nature can't select that out. Okay, NASA could have waited for billions of years and none of those solutions would have come for the possible problems that came about. It took an engineering mind. And that's what we see, is that anything, I don't care what it is, anything that has been engineered has sensors to be aware of its environment, anything like this, I should say. It has logic, something that that sensor can pick up and say, oh, this is good, this is bad, it's, it's working, it's not working, and then a way to respond. And so it, you could kind of sum it up in three things, sensor, logic, and output. Sensors, logic, and output. So God has programmed sensors in us to respond with the logic then that he programmed into the DNA and then a, a response that takes place within your genetic markers. That's basically what we're seeing. So it's a radical way that we are understanding natural selection, or should I say supernatural selection. That's why I call it that. There's nothing natural about this at all. It has to be supernatural. No way around it. Here we see this article from Scientific America, No Clue of How Life Began by Only Natural Processes. They don't have a clue, yet they tell us it happened all the time through natural processes. We don't have a clue how, we just know it did. Why? Because they won't accept God as the, the reason that it's there. And so what happens is they come up with these terms like convergent evolution, convergence, things like that. Well, all that is is when a creature ha has very different uh, features, but yet similar ones at the same time. So it's like, well, we know that this creature got this aspect from this other animal, but it's still very different, but there's still some convergence there. So the question is, how does this happen? Well, they're, they're close, but without God, they just can't see it. This guy here is one of the leading researchers on lizards in the world. And basically what happens is we see that if you go to a, a, a forest where there are trees and all kinds of things like that, the lizards have long legs. If you take and look in brushy areas in the desert, just, you know, scrubby stuff, they have shorter legs than they do with the tree and wall type lizards. Okay, 
So he says this, in recent years, scientists have identified convergence in almost any type of trait that you might imagine. Well, what happened was there was a hurricane that wiped out all the lizards on seven islands, just took them all out. And so these islands, because everything was wiped out, they had to start over and they had just scrubby plants on them. So what they did is they took these lizards out of the forests to replant them on these seven islands. And what they ended up happening is every single one of those long-legged forest uh, lizards, in just a matter of a few years, all got short, stubby legs, simply by changing the environment that it was in. We know that their ancestors had long legs, and it was not natural selection, it was supernatural selection. Somebody pre-programmed information, sensors to understand the environment, logic to respond to it, and the ability to change a solution. He goes on, our prediction was that they would evolve shorter legs, and they did. Over the course of four years, average limb length steadily declined on all seven islands, exactly as predicted, and all seven islands were evolving in lockstep. You see how they can't abandon evolution even though the evidence is screaming design? What you, just stop for a moment and think about what you learned about evolution. This does not fit. But rather than abandoning what they've been teaching for all these years, they just try to use the words but don't give you an explanation of how it can happen. So. When you read newspapers, you see in the media, these are the words you have to kind of watch out for. Things like regulated, rapid, repeatable, reversible, targeted, predictable. Okay, These words are everywhere in scientific literature now. Never, when I was in high school, no. But now they are because of what we're learning about genetics and the information in genetics. They seem to track environmental changes through dozens of different mechanisms within the body. I mean, we don't even understand it all. It's, it's so incredible. But we know that there are responses. Even like, you know, if you go out and shoot a gun, there's a response that your body does without you even thinking about it. A, a jump, you know, to, to prepare yourself to make a solution to some danger that's around you. You, just, you don't even have to think about it at all. The question then becomes, is, is this environmental tracking, this, this you know, awareness of what our environment is, is that coming from external sources or is it an internal source? Like God, like the biology God placed in us. And those are the only two options. So um, you might, you know, today we hear things like, well, you know, he got the skinny gene, or, you know, well, he got the big bone gene, or whatever the case might be. Uh, going back to that idea of skinny gene, fat gene, we, we don't have that. That really is not how it works. It's how that gene is expressed, because it's organism-focused, not gene-focused. Now, granted, yes, maybe that gene within your body is being a certain aspect of it, a marker on it is being turned on, but you don't have a fat gene. You don't have a skinny gene. And 
can we pass those things on to our children by our behaviors? Yes. Maybe you've got a skinny gene, but you know what I'm saying, just the, the way we use it. But you could pass on, because you eat nothing but ho-hos and ding-dongs, on to your children, that same gene, and your children's children, that same gene, and they're going to be heavy because a marker has been turned on or off. So I think it's very important. Um, another thing that evolution doesn't encounter is things like our love, our ability to love, uh, our mind, our ability to think. Those things go on after our biological functions have stopped, and that's something evolution ignores as well. But just like this car here, it has sensors to, like I said, sense its outside environment. It can drive even without a driver. Organisms are doing the same thing, and the only way they can do it is because they were engineered, just like this car was engineered. So the article on the right is interesting here. It talks about guinea pigs. What they did is they took males, and they put them on a heating pad for 70 days, and they kept them on this heating pad so that, well, you know it's close to the heating pad on a male guinea pig, okay? It cooked their sperm. And so what ended up happening is that they took them and mated them with females. These females had not been on heating pads. The offspring ended up then all of them born with 18 different genes that regulate temperature that allowed them to, in, uh, to adapt to a warmer environment to live in simply because their sperm was being cooked in a warmer environment, the children were better able to adapt to that uh, warmer climate. And that was shown on the genetic level. So these are just amazing. These solutions precede the challenges because God had to put it in there. This is not an accident. So uh, there are things like tiger snakes here. Tiger snakes, uh, they get very large in Australia. They took them and they put them on an island, and most of the entire population became much smaller simply because they were put onto an island. There is something they call island dwarfism. And it doesn't just happen with snakes, it happens with everything. Elephants, people, some of the so-called missing links that we have look exactly, they think they're small and it's some kind of evolution and whatnot, and yet... For some reason, even though on the island that it was found on, they call it Hobbit, even the island that it was found on, the people are the exact same height today that they are of this thing, uh, of Hobbit. So it, this island dwarfism is a real thing. The DNA is basically affected by the environment of a smaller land. We see the same thing in an aquarium with fish. If you take a fish and you put it in an aquarium, it will only grow so, uh, a certain size based on its environment. Put it in a bigger environment, that fish gets larger. Same thing happens with land animals. We see here, um, these are elephants. The island dwarf elephants, full grown, only get this tall, up to your waist. Okay, we find them in the fossil record. Now, by the way, this also shows this whole idea of horse evolution, how nonsensical that is as well, that these are different kinds. It's rapid, it's repeatable, and in many cases, reversible. 
We even see here some cool things, these beetles. Uh, over here, the one in the middle. That is actually a beetle that morphs to look like an ant, a female ant. What it does is it eats the ants, but the ants would attack it, this beetle. So it morphs so that it not only looks like, but smells like an ant. It lives in the ant colony, even goes and helps feed the other babies. It's just that when nobody's looking, he'll have lunch. And therefore he can eat as many as he wants, but takes care of the rest. Okay, But he changes. You can kind of see how they morph. It says, this discovery published March 9th, uh, I think it was 2022 here, in current biology provides evidence that evolution has the capacity to repeat itself in an astonishingly, astonishingly predictable way. And so, again, we're seeing that word predictable. It doesn't just happen once. It's not an accident, a mutation. But yet that's what we were taught, right? Accident, some mutation that somehow a screw-up takes place. This isn't a screw-up. This is a design and a good design at that. It was 17? Okay, I couldn't see. Thank you. Um, here we see this is the gold spider. It lives on leaves. Now, one is white when it lives on lichen, you know, on trees. Lichen is a white thing. One is brown that lives on the tree trunks. A gold one can go to another Hawaiian island and change colors to meet that condition where they live there in Hawaii. Again, look at this headline, Repeated Diversification of Ecomorphs in Hawaiian Stick Spiders. Move it environment, in rapid period, it changes colors. It says, we don't usually expect evolution to be predictable, but Hawaiian stick spiders of the Aram, whatever that is, genus, have repeatedly evolved the same distinctive forms, known as ecomorphs, on different islands. It goes on, the spiders arrive on an island, and boom! You get independent evolution to the same set of forms. This sort of rapid and repeated evolution. Boom. Happens like that. And I, I love that. Independent evolution. No, this is design. That is not what we were taught about evolution. There's some underlying mechanism of design. She goes on and she says... These spiders have some sort of pre-programmed switch in their DNA that can be quickly turned on to allow them to evolve rapidly into these successful forms. But how that process might work is still unclear. I got some suggestions for her. Okay, it's not evolution. This is designed, pre-programmed in there. Here in Nebraska, okay, this gal here, she studies mice up in the sandhills of Nebraska. She found that mice that migrated from the sand to forest environments change completely. When they go to the trees, their tails get longer. Even the number of vertebrae change. And that's simply by moving the mouse to a different environment. It says here, from a short-tailed prairie-dwelling ancestor for geographically distant populations across North America, longer tails have evolved repeatedly in similar forest habitat. This is like, this is how I feel like when I, 
when I first started doing debates at universities, I could debate science. And then all of a sudden, it's like you can't debate science anymore because all it was was personal attacks and philosophy and things that didn't make any sense. Like when I debated the, uh, Dan Barker, the Freedom of Religion president there in Madison, Wisconsin. He says, DNA is simple. And the crowd claps. I'm like, I don't know what to say. You can't argue with stupid. You, you really can't. I don't mean that to be rude. I mean, you really can't argue with stupidity. Okay, the guy is a brilliant guy. I'm not saying he's stupid, but his statement is absolutely stupid. And here we're seeing that evolution is what's doing this. I was taught evolution all my life, and none of these things fit the definition of evolution. But yet, they keep using the terms. Makes no sense, but we all clap about it. Doesn't make sense. Yeah, you change the definitions. Like I said, even the number of vertebrae changing. You might remember on Discovery Channel, they were talking about um, dinosaurs and chickens being related. And they'll show you the number of vertebrae on chickens and how they can change and this and that. Same thing. It's genetic, and it has nothing to do with being related to a chicken and a dinosaur. You know, no relation between the two. So uh, it goes on here. This is... Uh, Although mutations, a driver of evolution, occur at random, a study of the bacteria, this here, uh, a certain E. coli, reveals that nature often finds the same solution to the same problem again and again. Nature does this? Nature is accidental. Nature is natural selection that we've been saying. No, nature cannot do that. Somehow, if the same solution, the same problem, Again and again, identical mutations appearing independently in all three test tubes, they'll say. So, uh, again, I'm not going to go over all the, the experiment here, but I just want you to see how it personifies nature. It gives nature an ability and a power to do something. That's going to be extremely important here. Because here's their conclusion. These bacteria then can acquire predictable mutations to adapt to a changing environment. Same thing we've been talking about all night. I think we have a much better explanation here. And that is God. Okay, remember, science is always interpreted. What we're seeing, you have to interpret. And when these people, it's just like that, remember Jesus said that you don't add uh, new wine to old wineskins. I think that verse has been misunderstood tremendously uh, by Christians because it's oftentimes referred to as, you know, you don't add grace to the law or law to grace. It's not it because Luke's version of that even says then at the end that the person who uh, has the, the, the old wine says, no, the old is better. The old wine is better. So that, to say that what Jesus was saying was law doesn't belong with grace would be saying it ends up him saying the law is better. Okay? So that's not the explanation. There is a, a Jewish uh, proverb that was said all the time at G the time of Jesus. It's written in uh, a vote something. I don't remember the exact number. But bottom line is they said it's kind of like you can't teach a dog, an old dog new tricks. 
that if you take an educated person and you try to teach them new wine, new information, they won't receive it. They can't receive it. Because in that parable, the, the wine skin is a person, not a doctrine. It's the people. And I, the whole reason I'm bringing that up is here, we've got these people who have been brainwashed in evolution. They're the old dogs. You can't teach them new tricks. They're not willing to let go of what they've already been taught. So you come in and you try to teach them something else, and they won't accept it. You cannot add new wine to old wineskins, to old thinking, old habits. And that's what's going on here. They will not consider God as a possibility because these bacteria, the lizards, everything we've talked about, as I've said, they have sensors, they've got logic, they've got output to solve the environmental problems, and none of that fits the definition of evolution. None of it fits anything that we've been taught, but yet they will not let go of evolution. We have to change our view of what we have been taught about mutations. Years and years, kids have been taught that this is what evolution looks like right here. You got something that started, and from that we branch out into this big evolutionary tree. No, creation is actually quite different. It's not a single tree. It's a whole orchard. God created kinds, and from those kinds you get a variety, and that variety is going to be changing in predictable ways, repeatable ways, and sometimes even reversible ways. Just like, uh, as I said, the, the, the finches can go back and forth. Big beaks, little beaks, big beaks, little beaks, whatever. Okay? So, that's the truth. There are huge numbers of similar features that we cannot, or that cannot be explained by evolution. And somehow they say that they're related in some far distant past that we can't see, that the fossil record doesn't show us, or anything like that. Um, They've been wrong time and time and time again. We're seeing that this idea of relationship based on certain features or slightly different features, missing links that just have to have... How many examples have we heard of, well, this fish is related to that fish. Why? Well, because it has a bigger beak and all over millions of years it just changed. See, this throws that all out absolutely destroys evolution. So Darwinian evolution was wrong about the appendix. For years they said the appendix is of no use. It's an evolutionary leftover. They called it a vestigial organ. You, you, you used it millions of years ago when things were evolving, but you don't need it anymore. And now they've discovered that your appendix is extremely important. It's where your immune systems are initiated. And you take out your appendix... It increases your chances of leukemia, Hodgkin's disease, cancer of the colon, cancer of the ovaries. They were wrong. They said, your tailbone. Another thing where from our, it's just a leftover from our ancestors that you know, used to live in the trees. No, there are nine muscles that attach to those bones that are very important. And you remove your tailbone, you can't hardly even sit down. It is so painful. So, you know, it's often said, if anybody thinks that that's an evolutionary leftover, I'll pay to have yours taken out. Let's see how necessary it is. Nobody wants to take us up on that, though. 
Okay? They were wrong. We were told that gill slits, that in the womb, a child, a fetus they will call it, has these gill slits from when uh, that baby was going through a rapid stage of evolution. They were wrong again. Those aren't gills and they're not slits. They're wrinkles that turn into the jaw, the glands, the lower, uh, the lower jaw, and the ear. They were wrong. And everybody in the medical field knows that now. Uh, we were told not very many years ago that most of our DNA was junk DNA. Had no purpose. Maybe it did in the past, but it, it was useless. And they found that when they mapped the human genome, they were expecting just a huge number. And I think, I can't remember now if it was 20 to 30,000 genes is all. Not very many. Maybe it was 100,000. All I know is it should have been millions. They were wrong. They said most of it is junk. Now they have discovered that that junk DNA actually has a purpose. Some of it we still don't know what it is, but that's just because we're not smart enough yet. So they were wrong. They, were, they used to teach you that you were 98% genetically identical to a chimpanzee. Wrong again. Now, at best, about 85% similar, and that depends on what you're looking at. That's like, at best. You compare other things, we're, we're down into the 50s and 70% similarity. So not even close, especially when you consider a difference of a millionth of a percent is fatal when you're dealing with uh, genetics. Uh, I, won't, I won't get into it, but what I'm saying is 1% different is astronomical, genetically speaking. They were wrong about Neanderthals. Okay, about ancient man. Neanderthal was this missing link. Now they're discovering we all have Neanderthal DNA. Yeah, genetically, we're all related to Neanderthal. I mean, this is what they're saying. Okay, this isn't me, this is their stuff. You see, the direct creation of God is important. How did we get here? God directly spoke us into existence. The Bible tells us that. Evolution says it was from some ape-like ancestor. Okay, who was the first person to get here? Well, the Bible tells us it was Adam, then Eve. Evolution says, well, we really don't know. Some, you know, monkey. And then some of these theistic evolutionists like, um, you know, Hugh Ross, thank you. Hugh Ross will tell us things like, well, what happened is Adam was the first time God put the living spirit soul into the monkey. That was Adam. Okay, that's not what scripture says. How many? As I said, a pair. Evolution says you start with a population. How does that happen? I don't know. How do you have a man and a woman evolving at the same place, at the same time in history, with the proper functioning parts that are different between the man and the woman in order for this to happen. No way. And even to make it go up even more so, they'd have to be interested in one another. I'm sure it's no problem for the guy, but for the girl, pff, bad chance. Okay. They've been wrong about everything. And I want you guys to know there is not one speck of difference between a theistic evolutionist and an atheistic evol uh, evolutionist. When it comes to what we're talking about now, there is not a speck of difference. What do I mean by that? Well, evolution says that it is a death-driven means uh, of coming about. Death is the hero. The Bible says death is not the hero. It is the 
curse. Right? Remember Steve Jobs, he had pancreatic cancer. And he was speaking, I think it was at Stanford or something like that. And this is what he said when he's, he knew he was dying. Death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. See, death becomes the hero. If you're a theistic evolutionist, death is the hero to get to where we are today. You're an atheist, death is the hero to get us to where we are today. Things get better through death. And so... You look at this picture with the lion and the zebra. That's bad. That's evil. That's, that should be gross and disgusting to us. We should groan when we see that. And I think most people, especially today in our animal rights, I mean, you go, oh, that poor zebra. Okay? I don't know. Surely there's got to be somebody out there. Oh, that poor lion needs something to eat. But, you know. Death becomes the hero for an evolutionist. But we know deep inside, innately, you know death is not a hero. You know, I'd like to see Steve Jobs when, you know, have a kid that's two years old and he's nice and healthy and, and say that death is the hero as his two-year-old dies. Okay? This makes no sense. It's illogical, it's unreasonable, and it's an escape to, to, to basically worship this evolution. See, the doctrine of God is not compatible with Darwinianism, Darwinian evolution in any way, shape, or form. The idea of tying millions of years into the Bible and God used evolution, it's in, absolutely incompatible. And I'm going to... I want to show you that this is idol worship. But before I do, one of the criticisms that I have heard for the last 30 years is this. Brian, when you go and you teach this to churches and you're dogmatic about creation and a young earth, when you're dogmatic about that, you are causing Christians to, to be confused and you're bringing division about in the church and it's not healthy. We need to basically hold hands and sing kumbaya, Right? How many of you have heard that, that being strong and taking the Bible literally, whether it be on creation or homosexuality or any of these topics, is dangerous to the church? It's divisive. I find this study here fascinating because of that. you got three people that are looked at here. Those that take the Word of God literally as the inspired Word of God on the top in the red. Then you have those that, or I'm sorry, those are in the middle. Then you see those in the red on top that believe the Bible is inspired, but it's not literal. Uh, so, theistic evolutionists. And then you have on the bottom in the green, those that say, it's not true at all, it's just a book of fables. It's no different than Little Red Riding Hood. Okay? Those are the three groups of people. You might say, atheists... Strong evangelical Christians, and then compromised Christians. What's fascinating about this is the study showed that those that took the Bible literally have remained constant and steady throughout from 1990 to 2015. That the numbers and, and the, all of the belief systems have remained steady. Those that saw it as a fable actually grew in numbers. Now what I mean by that is they became Christians and so 
Christians came out of it because they began to realize, hey, there's some, this isn't just a fable, it's reality. And those that took the Bible as more of a uh, suggestion, but believed that it was you know, from God, but more allegorical, have dropped. So what it's showing us is quite the opposite. To hold truth as our standard and stand solidly on that foundation of truth wins. You know, that whole turtle thing, steady wins the race, slow and steady. But this idea that we have to compromise to please people and to, 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 to fit in with our society, they lose. And that is what's happening. And so I think that it's just simply not true for us to say that we're hurting the gospel to stand on a, a literal truth. Let's start closing out here with Romans 1.22. It says this, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. See a lot of that in universities today. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So they're exchanging the glory of God for images, something a replacement of. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God or about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So they exchanged the real God for a false God. Well, look at this here. Darwin's theory of natural selection accounts for the design of organisms. Did you catch that? Who created everything? Not according to this article. Natural selection did. Natural selection is personified here. Natural selection is given the power to select. Nature is given the power to select. Nature is given the power to favor. Nature is given the power to punish. These are all words that you'll see in scientific articles where they will give nature an ability and power to select, to create, to favor, to punish. It's personified. It goes on, and for their wondrous diversity as the result of natural processes, the gradual accumulation of spontaneously arisen variations, uh, mutations sorted out by natural selection. Look at this. Everywhere we look in nature, we see animals that seem beautifully designed to fit their environment. Whether that environment be the physical circumstances of life, like temperature and humidity, or the other organisms, competitors, predators, and prey that every species must deal with. It is no surprise that early naturalists believed that animals were the product of celestial design created by God to do their jobs. Okay, basically quoting Romans in some sense, I mean, you can see God's power qualities in nature through that which has been made. Look what he's saying. We see animals that seem beautifully designed. I look at nature, it seems like there's a design there, but then he goes on. Darwin dispelled this notion in the origin, meaning the origin of species. In a single chapter, he completely replaced centuries of certainty about divine design with the notion of a mindless materialistic process, natural selection. Who replaced God? Natural selection. 
that could accomplish the same result. It's hard to overestimate the effect that this insight had, not only on biology, but on people's worldview. Many have not yet recovered from the shock, and the idea of natural selection still arouses fierce and irrational opposition. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't use the word evolution. He uses the word natural selection as the means or power by which this happens. Some magical agent to replace God. It strikes me as funny that these are the same scientists who are scared of climate change. If, if nature does it. was true, then the animals would be fine. And if death is such a hero, yeah. why are they pushing their vaccine they want so much, right? Maybe they actually do believe that. Anyway, look at this lady here. Again, not Christian people here. Um, she says, Darwin was brilliant to make natural selection a sort of godlike term, an expression that could replace God. Who did it? Created life forms. He, he made it easy for his contemporaries to think and verbalize Mr. Big Omnipotent God in the sky, picking out those he wants to keep. He has been conceived of as the natural selector, he throws the others away. Can you see how natural selection truly is a God? It is truly idol worship because we have allowed nature to become this powerful changing force, this magical power. That's idol worship, folks. Okay, imagine I had a statue that I would set up here and I said that it punishes, it favors, it chooses, it selects. You'd say, that's idol worship. And this is what we see in article after article after article. Natural selection favors, selects, punishes, chooses. Natural selection is a god. And if you are an atheistic evolutionist or a theistic evolutionist, you still stand on natural selection as your god. That simple. The idolatry is not in the statue. The idolatry is in your mind. The power that you give to that statue, the power you give to natural selection, or the power you give to God. It's that simple. Closing out, last quote. Biologists now tend to believe profoundly that natural selection is the invisible is the invisible hand that crafts well-wrought forms. It may be an overstatement to claim that biologists view selection as the sole source of order in biology, but not by much. If current biology has a central canon, you've now heard it. Okay, this is like an article of faith, a confession of faith. Can you see Romans in this stuff? They exchange the truth of God, the power of God, for a lie. An imaginary, magical power to deify nature. Though they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they worshipped and served created things. And by the way, it goes on, and I love that in Romans, it goes on. It says they worshipped and served created things, and it talks about all kinds of animals. Birds and animals and reptiles. God knew what we were going to do with the truth, how we would just trample on it. And so I hope that this challenges you to realize, listen, we, we've got to really examine our heart and where are we assigning the power 
to? Is it to some natural process? And I know you guys don't do that, but I suspect that many of you haven't made these dots connect to see, wow, when we even say the word natural selection, that's like speaking the name of an idol out of your mouth. There is, it's supernatural selection because God has pre-programmed that information in your body to be able to adapt. It can be repeatable. It can be predictable. It can be reversible. And so maybe even think about that with what we eat and how we treat our bodies and what we do. It's repeatable. It's reversible. All right? And so generational sin sometimes might even be physical, genetically, because of our choices. And we need to take those things into consideration and, and think about it. So anyway, let's close in prayer.